as human beings, and I mean, this is something, a, a, a phrase Daniel Kahneman uses repeatedly is, um, the human mind is a machine for jumping to conclusions. And we're so good at going from a small amount of information to a fully formed opinion. And I really want to resist that in myself. I really want to try to be humble about my own capacity for uh, making stuff up and jumping to premature conclusions. I really want to be aware of that weakness in myself. And, and particularly under pressure, I want to be aware that that weakness becomes even more pronounced. Welcome to the Find the Gap podcast, where we're going to focus on the health and well-being of the support personnel and practitioners within high-performance sport. This will act as a platform for practitioners to share their own insights and experiences that have helped them to progress to where they are today, as well as being a safe environment which they can touch upon moments of vulnerability and other emotional battles that they've had to overcome in order to be successful. My name is Sam, and thanks for joining me on Finding Up Podcast. This podcast episode is brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software that performance coaches all around the world are using to build programs, distribute workouts, and track athlete progress. It is the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, sports physios, gym owners, schools, and universities. The platform includes multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting features. Coaches also have the access to consultation with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up for the promo code FTG to start your 30-day free trial. So on today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Tim Harkness. And Tim is the head of sports science and psychology at the Chelsea Football Club over in the UK. And also the author of a book called 10 Rules for Talking. And in a little bit of different episode today is we're going to talk more about Tim's personal uh, beliefs and theories and frameworks around staying mentally well within the uh, high performance industry rather than his own experiences himself. Uh, and he's going to open up about some rules that he's put through in difficult conversations uh, in his publication of 12 Rules for Talking. So I'm really, really keen to get to sit down with Tim and have a bit of a chat. But without any further ado, here is the episode. Now, Tim, mate, thank you very much for jumping on this episode of the podcast. How are you doing this morning? Yes, this morning. Oh, well, 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 thank you. Yes, it is morning for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, we got a week to go before preseason, so I'm just kind of getting ready for that. Yeah, I could imagine. And you're in the middle of winter, oh, sorry, the middle of summer, just getting started in summer? That's correct, yes. Sadly, yeah, summer means hay fever as well. So I'm kind of hiding out in the bunker at the best time of year to um hiding out in an air filtered bunker oh my it's a bit annoying but yeah. anyway season will be over soon yeah good now all the best for pre-season but we'll, we'll get right into it mate and you're talking a little just, just just get the podcast started in your background educational background um maybe some experiences that led up to where you are today okay well so i'm, I'm a psychologist by training um a counseling psychologist um, and I actually uh, started off um, as a comparative psychologist studying baboon behavior in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, but moved into a normal psychology practice. And I practiced as a psychologist for 13 years 
Um, part of that psychology practice was sport. And then um, 13 years ago, I moved into a full-time role at Chelsea Football Club. And I've kind of been there full-time ever since um, and have moved into sports science also. So now I play a dual role, uh, sports science and psychology. And what's it like tackling those two major roles at the club in terms of like the response, uh, the level of the roles? Um, well, you know, I, I'm just realizing we're quite quickly getting into territory that I can't kind of say too much about. Mm. But, um, but in, in general, combining the roles of psychology and sports science, it, it's fairly unusual for somebody to do both. Mm. Uh, I, I think I, I just have a good team of people around me, you know, so yeah. there are things that I can't do and there are things, you know, that I'm not trained in, but I've got really good people around me and, and they, they support me in that. So it, it's, it's, it's a team effort. Mm. Yeah. That was the main reason why I was asking questions is, is this sounds um, unusual to have the combination role, um, which is unique and which is awesome. So and hence my interest in, in talking to you um, yeah. and also your, your uh your book that you've written the the 10 rules of talking what really got you started to mo- and motivated to write that book um you know working as a psychologist you have what you could consider to be a lot of difficult conversations because people are coming to you and they're talking about difficult topics you know they 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 they're trusting you with um things that matter a lot to them uh, and they're, they're trusting you with things that, um, that, that that may have been troubling them or they're trusting you with things that they're really trying to work out. Hmm. And in some ways, those are quite difficult conversations to have. But that category of conversation is in a different category of difficulty from what you can get when you move into a corporate environment. Because when you move into a corporate environment, maybe the actual subject matter is not as difficult or not as close to somebody's heart. But you do have issues like um, agendas are not necessarily shared. um, And people don't necessarily want to be having that conversation. So it creates a different kind of difficulty um, when it comes to actually talking issues through. And I suddenly realized that while I was very good at having a certain kind of conversation, I was actually quite inexperienced at having another kind of conversation Mm. and that really kicked off uh, an interest in broadening my conversation skills Mm. and you know it was sort of recognizing that this was a area of skill that I lacked Mm. Um, so you know that's what really got me started. Mm. And then what what would you say is the the art in a way of having a difficult conversation like how how do you manage a difficult conversation how do you start a difficult conversation? Yeah I, I think I think, you know, when I got into this field, I, what I really wanted to get out of it was just being better at convincing everybody else that they were wrong and that I was right. That, that's what I was really hoping for. Hmm. And the deeper I got into it, I realized that was kind of the problem, is that I was walking <clears throat> into with that attitude. And I think in some ways the art is to have a deeper appreciation for where the other person is coming from Mm. and to be more invested in trying to sympathize with them and understand them and start the conversation with that assumption. Um, 
and then take it from there. And, you know, when, when I first started working in this world, I was doing quite a lot of workshops and people were giving me feedback and they were saying, you know, they've got really good at reducing conflict in their conversations, but the way they were doing that was just, um, just submitting to the other person or kind of giving the other person everything that they wanted and not pressing their own point of view. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's also the skill is while you've got to go into this conversation, understanding where the other person is coming from, You've got to be able to do that, do that without sacrificing your own needs and your own valid point of view. Mm. And it's combining two valid points of view that is the very interesting question. It's not about one person being categorically wrong and another person being categorically right. It's about saying, well, from your perspective, you, you are drawing valid conclusions from your perspective, and I'm drawing valid conclusions from my perspective. Let's combine those perspectives and collaborate. Let's work together to combine our perspectives, combine our information and work together to produce a new, more comprehensive understanding of the situation. Hmm. Well, it takes a lot of maturity from both parties to be able to do that though, doesn't it? You know. but, but in a way, that's the definition of maturity. Yeah. You know, the, 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 almost, we, we could almost say that's what maturity is. is yeah, the yeah, ability yeah. To look beyond your own immediate circumstances. Mm. So, and then if we put into this perspective a, um, say, a strength coach and a, uh, a very arrogant athlete who is not looking at, at the other perspective, let's say the, 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 the athlete isn't willing to look at the strength coach's perspective and they're disagreeing and the strength coach is trying to have a difficult conversation with the athlete. Um, how, how does the, let's say we're putting a perspective from the strength coach's point of view, how does the strength coach really kind of work that situation? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I think rule two for me is accept that agreement takes skill and effort. Mm. And the first thing you've got to do almost is, is manage your own expectations. Because if you're expecting that any conversation should be a simple, straightforward conversation, and this person should immediately get what it is that you're trying to communicate, then conversations are going to be not necessarily difficult, but they're going to be more difficult than you thought they were going to be. Mm. And that's the part that distresses people is as human beings, we don't have a problem with difficulty, but we don't like things that are more difficult than we thought they were going to be. Mm. And that's almost the starting point. You know, it's not exactly the starting point, but it is rule number two. It is sort of the second step is first of all, temper your expectations. Secondly, maybe this athlete isn't arrogant now maybe he is you know there are arrogant athletes out there but maybe this guy is not arrogant maybe he's got his own perspective or maybe you know he's he's maybe he knows things that you don't or Mm. maybe there are things about him that you don't know that could help you see his response in a more nuanced light Mm. so that also would be um would be part of what I would say is, and and that is rule three, is remember that most people are good, competent, and worthy of respect. And, you know, I always say that rule three is not remember that all people are good, competent, and worthy of respect, because there are some bad people out there, but most people are good people. So if you go into this conversation saying, first of all, let's not assume that this is going to be an easy conversation, because, Mm. you know, you're trying to change someone's behavior here. 
that's one of the most difficult things that you can do as you know because most people find it hard enough to change their own behavior let alone the behavior of someone else mm. um secondly let's assume that this person is a good person he's competent and he's worthy of respect and kind of let, let, let's take it from there yeah correct now these when you say rules these are rules from your your book correct that's correct yes yeah. yes Mm, yeah, that um, I'm going to absolutely botch this reference, but there's a book that I read recently that there's four rules on life, on success, something, I can't remember what it was. It was one of those yeah. books. Uh, and one of the rules was similar to that was no, don't make assumptions, not to make assumptions. And then if you're approaching a conversation, so I'm just reiterating what you're saying, in my, but you're saying you're approaching a conversation, empathetic um, or uh, uh, understanding that they have their own point of view, but also understanding that, it, it is worth considering before you make judgments, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. And so listening, there's one I'll talk to you next about listening. Um, yeah. How, how important, how important is listening? Because I know yeah. well, human nature, we always want to be, I'm, I know I do this personally when, if my partner or if it's a client or, or an athlete comes with a problem and, and, and wants, and just not complaining, but just something they're struggling with. Uh, and then it, you, human nature, just in your head, you want to be trying to figure out a problem, well, figure out the problem, figure out the the, the resolution to the problem, kind of thing. Um, but how important is just to listen uh, for conversations? Yeah, you know, years and years ago, at the beginning of my career, um, a, a, I was working with a, a ten pin bowler, and he referred his best friend to me, who's a professional golfer. And the professional golfer came to me and he said, "Oh, you know." Guy, the Tim Pimbola's name was Guy. Guy said, you're really good. He said, you don't do anything, but you're really good. And I've always remembered that and, and you know, tried to kind of take that as a compliment that I, I think when you listen, you know, you, you're not, you're not, well, it, it may seem like you're not doing anything, but th there's a lot of value in that. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I don't like to work from a position whatever I'm doing, you know, whether I'm doing sports science or whether I'm doing psychology, I want to know. And the only way you're going to know is through listening. And, you know, this is one of the things that I think as human beings, and I mean, this is something, a, a, a phrase Daniel Kahneman uses repeatedly is um, the human mind is a machine for jumping to conclusions. And we're so good at going from a small amount of information to a fully formed opinion and I really want to resist that in myself. I really want to try to be humble about my own capacity for uh, making stuff up and jumping to premature conclusions. I really want to be aware of that weakness in myself. And, and particularly under pressure, I want to be aware that that weakness becomes even more pronounced. So working against that means hopefully just do more listening, do more information gathering, be more cautious before I, I reach a conclusion. Mm. More self-aware as you're listening, being more yes. self-aware. Yes. And, you know, I, I came across this amazing, um, I, I watched this video of a, a, a military contact where, I, I don't know, somebody needed to be rescued from, an, from a firefight. Mm. And the only helicopter that they had available was an attack helicopter that did not have a seat in it. And they needed to fly and pick up the soldier and actually strap him to the side of the helicopter, this injured soldier, 
and pull him out. And they had to decide whether to do this or not. And the commander of the operation had to make a decision while this firefight was going on. And one of his subordinates radioed him and said, give me a decision. And the guy said, I need time to think about this. Can I have 60 seconds? And they said, no, you can't have 60 seconds. And he said, give me 20 seconds. And the guy said, all right, you've got 20 seconds to think this through. And I thought that was an amazing sort of interaction that the guy knew he didn't have a lot of time, but he needed some time. And mm. 20 seconds, you can actually do a lot of thinking in 20 seconds. Mm. Um, you know, and you can do a lot of listening in mm. 20 seconds. It's, you know, it's not necessarily a case of, you know, sit down, shut up for the next hour. Um, you know, sometimes just, just give it 20 seconds, see what happens. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And who knows, like you said, a lot can happen in 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, now, with, from, a, um, from an athlete's point of view, um, listening to athletes, I wanted to talk to you about um, like the, the, the concept of the hedonistic or, or hedonic adaptation, uh, the hedonistic treadmill of yep. continued happiness, you know, disappointment. It's continuous on a treadmill going up and down, basically on yep. arousal. And yeah, like, like I said, you know, the, the, the concept, but being an athlete always at, at the highest level, for example, um, who may be struggling. Uh, because they want to make the next step because they're not happy where they are. Well, they've made the highest level, but it's not good enough. It's not the best. They want to keep going. Um, you know, how, what's it like listening to that? And what's it like to give advice to someone who is at the elite level, but who just wants more, who wants more, isn't, isn't happy where, where they are? And whether it be staff as well, maybe staff as well want to progress. Um, yeah. But yeah, from, yeah. Your, from your point of view and from your experiences. You know, I... This is such an important question. It's such a fundamental question. And, and in a way, you know, it's funny sitting here and, and kind of being asked that question because I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. But it's really central to people who work in this field because I think all of us who are fortunate enough to work in sport with high-level athletes, mm. we're kind of doing our dream jobs. And, and, and that's for us as staff, but it's true for the athlete as well. They're doing their dream jobs. You know, they're doing what they dreamt about doing when they were little kids. And, and at a certain point, that begs the question, well, is this as good as it gets? Because mm -hmm. sometimes from a work point of view, well, this is as good as it gets. You know, the, the, the dream has come true. What now? Um, you know, and, and. I've, I've been, I, I regard this to have been an amazing life experience to have spoken to people whose wildest dreams have come true. You know, and, and I'm thinking about in particular an Olympic athlete who dreamt his whole life of winning a gold medal and then he won the gold medal. And he had actually never thought about well, what was going to happen after you win the gold medal. Mm. And that knocked him sideways. So, I do think that this question of, well, what now, you know, the, the, and, and, and I think the privilege that I've had is speaking to people who categorically cannot achieve anymore mm. proves that this is not what fulfills your life. And, and that's something I'm very grateful for is that th there is no end point where you can go, well, I tick that box and I'm happy and I'm done. Mm. achievement doesn't do that for you it has to come from other places mm. and so 
so and and this is something you you know this is something you can't really know if you're starting out because if you're just starting out you might think to yourself well if only i get to this point if yeah. only i get to that point i'm going to be happy and then i can just be happy ever after mm. and you know it's a privilege for me to have spoken to people who've got to those points and they've not got to the happily ever after. So that's not the solution. And I can say that with confidence because I know people who've done it and it's not been the solution. Mm. So what then? And, you know, this is where I think, and, and the guy I use more than anybody else is um, Martin Seligman with his concept of PERMA. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's one you're, you're familiar with. No, not particularly, no. So Martin Seligman, you know, just just to kind of maybe sidetrack a little bit. Yeah, no, please go for it. When when I was I was asked by a friend a few years ago, you know, the psychology that you studied, looking back now, almost 30 years later, what do you think of it? And and I said to him, at best useless. That so much of what I studied at university was, you know, looking back, just wrong. Mm. And and the reason why it was wrong is because psychology at the time had a tradition of kind of navel gazing, that the, 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 the top sort of most famous psychologist like Freud or, you know, th that whole sort of psychoanalytic tradition. And to be brutally honest, even some CBT, the guys are just navel gazing mm. and they were just thinking what, you know, what, what sort of makes sense, just making stuff up. And that's not a scientific approach to understanding ourselves, or understanding the world. But in America, there actually was this really rigorous branch of psychology that was going on. And one of the pioneers of that is a psychologist called Martin Seligman, who studied real people in the real world rather than just dreaming up stuff inside his own head. Yeah. So it means that what this tradition of psychology produces is proper research and can actually be relied on. And one of the things that Martin Seligman kind of demonstrated after speaking to thousands of people all over the world about what makes for a satisfying life is mm -hmm. that there are five key components of a satisfying life. So he calls it PERMA. It's positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And he says those people all over the world who report themselves as having satisfying lives have these five elements in their lives. Positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And interestingly, the two really key ones are meaning and accomplishment. And he says those two are so important that even you can go for times without positive emotion necessarily. You don't always have to be happy. You don't even always have to have loads and loads of relationships. But if you've got meaning and accomplishment, that is going to pull you through. Mm. And <clears throat> this would come back to the idea of, what do we have to do with athletes? We have to be sure that there is a sense of meaning in their lives. Mm -hmm. And we have to be sure that there is a sense of accomplishment also. And the thing is, we have to find that meaning and we have to define that accomplishment. Accomplishment is not just the next competition or the next medal or, or whatever. Um, it's, uh, it, it's something deeper than that. And it's something more, um, you know, more, more individual. Mm -hmm. and that's so yeah, the that, sorry sorry continue these are very important questions these are very important conversations that we need to be having with ourselves and with athletes mm, yeah and that was basically the, the next question i was going to ask was about like you know what what really makes this full 
fulfillment in athletes and how, like, how do you kind of meet play that in your, in your, uh, in your practice? But it, it's like, you've got to find purposes that are outside of what their identity is, which is there, there's an athlete. They are the world-class footballer, world-class Olympian, whatever it might be. That is their identity. Um, but they've got to find purpose outside of that as well. Yeah. Family, you know, friends, I, relationships. Yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to meaning, I, I, I would say, and, and I, I, I think the, the one thing that is meaningful to me is that if I, I confirm my own identity. So, you know, I, I think of myself as a person with, say, you know, if you say to me, well, who are you? And I go, well, I'm someone who works hard. I'm someone with a certain level of uh, integrity and I'm someone with a certain level of creativity or whatever, you know, let's say I'm going to go, that's me. And then if I get to do something that confirms those elements about myself, that is going to be meaningful. You know, if I define myself in a different way, I'm, I'm someone who's like, you know, let's say outrageously talented or I'm, I'm someone who, who, is, um, who, who is a leader or I'm someone who is, you know, decisive. Let's say those are my identities and I do something and I confirm that, yes, there was this crunch moment and I, I showed leadership in that moment. Because I've confirmed my identity, that is meaningful. Mm. So that, you know, whatever your identity is, to confirm it is meaningful. We do things that confirm positive elements of our own identity. Mm. Um, then another thing that is meaningful is if I, if I enhance a sense of belonging. So, you know, if I'm a member of a team and I do something that confirms that I am a member of a team or a member of a group of friends or a member of a family or, you know, a member of a, a workplace or whatever it may be, if I do something that enhances my belonging to a group, that's meaningful. Mm. And the third thing that's meaningful is if I make a difference to someone. You know, if, if, I, if I reach out and help somebody in the street, that's meaningful because I've made a difference to somebody. If, if I have a client and I make a difference to that client, that's meaningful. So, you know, for me as a practitioner, those are the three areas that I can look for meaning. And, and then, you know, when it, when it comes to accomplishment, accomplishments have to be meaningful, mm. you know, and, and that's why, you know, winning the lottery, for example, it's not really meaningful. It, it may be an accomplishment or, you know, but it's not really meaningful because it doesn't necessarily confirm an element of my own identity, doesn't enhance my belonging. To, and, and unless I can use it to make a difference to someone else, it's, it, you know, it, it's not going to tick that box either. So generally accomplishment has to be achieved through effort and it has to be a meaningful uh, accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And then, then I'm sort of stepping off that hedonic treadmill where I always need something more um, because at least I now know what it is that gives me that sense of meaning and gives me that sense of accomplishment. Well, very well said, very well said. But what happens if that identity is threatened? So, you know, that identity, that identity in a, in a job, um, lose the job or um, yeah. don't get picked from the team or you're not playing well kind of thing when that, that identity as a player or as a employee is threatened. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a, another very important question. And, and th that threat is not only if I actually have lost the job, the threat is the prospect of losing the job. So, you know, everything might be going quite well, but I'm still experiencing the stress just because of what might happen. Mm. <clears throat> now, 
I'm a South African, so I'm going to use uh, South African animals as a kind of reference to this. But in South Africa, you get um, different kinds of predators. You get cheetahs and you get hyenas. Hmm. And a cheetah eats fast running antelope. That's the only thing a cheetah eats. So as long as there are lots of fast running antelope around, the cheetah is going to be fine. Hmm. A hyena also eats fast running antelope, but it also eats slow moving antelope it eats vegetables it eats rubbish it eats dead animals it eats anything mm -hmm. so a cheetah is going to run out of food far more often than a hyena is going to run out of food and when it comes to identity we have to be hyenas rather than cheetahs we've got to be very careful that we have multiple sources of input into our own identity mm -hmm. because the more narrow your source of input into your identity, the more vulnerable you're going to be. Mm. And I can imagine the cheetahs are far more anxious animals than hyenas because hyenas are just going, well, no antelope today, no problem. I'll head over to the garbage dump and fill up there. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying we have to do exactly that with our identity, but the more broad our source of input into our identity, the more resilience and the more kind of, um, the, the more confident we're going to be. Mm. Yeah, perfect. Um, now, just to follow on you were saying about um, your your last your last answer, um, do you do you encourage your um, athletes or the people you come in contact with? Do you encourage vulnerability? And you were talking about resilience before, but do you encourage vulnerability in a scenario, for example, where their their identity is threatened? Um, well, I I'd, I'd say two things about this. The one is um, the one is to go back to that multiple sources of um, of uh, of, of identity, you know multiple positive inputs. Mm -hmm. um, th that's the one thing. The, the second thing I would say is that if if you ask me, am I going to win a match? And I say, definitely. What I've done is I've expressed a higher level of confidence that I'm going to win that match. But ironically, it's hard to be confident about that confidence. So if you then came to me and said, how confident are you about what you just said? And I was honest, I wouldn't be because I'm not definitely going to win the match. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So ironically, the more confident I act, the less confident I actually feel. Yeah, right. Okay. On the other hand, if you come to me and you say, how likely are you to win this match? And I go, well, I'm giving myself two out of three or maybe even one out of four, whatever. And then you say to me, how confident are you about what you just said? I'm going to say, I'm really confident about what I just said. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the less confident upfront I act, the more confident I am of what I've just said. Mm. Yeah. So in a weird way, the less confident I act, the more confident I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. So accepting vulnerability, accepting that I'm not Superman actually makes me more confident, not less. Mm. Fascinating. That's uh, then, as you were as you were explaining that Penny was dropping for me, and it makes perfect sense. 
and I can just be more chilled out about life then. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So embracing, you know, your vulnerability or embracing the fact that you aren't, yeah, like I said, not Superman, whether it be yeah. as yeah. an athlete, you know, you can go in this game knowing you might lose, but embracing yes. it. Yes. And that's not to say I'm not going to give it a hundred percent. No, I'm no, going correct. to absolutely scrap for this. I'm going to absolutely go for this and give me any chance and I will take it. Mm. But I'm not Superman. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, and, and one of the things I've used with athletes sometimes is no guarantees in sport. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that would be kind of foolish to assume. Mm. So we just go no guarantees in sport. And well, actually, it can make me feel more confident, not less. Yeah, no, that's and that, that's why I find the role of a sports psychologist so fascinating because dealing with athletes where the, their job, it's not always a certainty and they can only control a certain part. They can only control certain things. And I think it's, um, I don't know if you're short of um, uh, Ben Crow in Australia. The, uh, he's a motivational speaker. He does a lot yep. of footy, footy players here, Ash Barty, uh, big Aussie Aussie uh, athletes, not sorry. So he's not sure he's too uh, well known internationally. Uh, But he says something along the lines of like um, uh, focusing on the controls, focusing on something that you, you, sorry, focusing on something that you can't control, uh, but you want to control it is like the definition of stress and and anxiety because you want to control that part what you can't do, but that just gives you anxiety and stress. And then if an athlete, wants to always control the game and they'll do their best obviously to do that. And that's what their, their job is or the, the staff in the same way, but they can only control what they've done. They can only control what they've trained to do. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to bring forth for you is how, you know, it's, is it, is it unique for a sports psychologist rather than just like an, an, a psychologist outside of sport to be able to deal with someone who wants to control or wants to be in such a controlling environment? Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of these things are human, human questions and, mm. you know, human issues. That's it, yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think sport is interesting and then it might, uh, sport is kind of, we watch it and we talk about it. So it highlights some of these issues, but that's one of the things I love about being a sports psychologist is I, I think these are broader human questions. And, you know, this, this question about, well, what is it that I can control um, and understanding that? And, and in fact, you know, my, I've got a, a psychology mentor, uh, Clinton Gavila, and I mean, he's, he's a close friend of mine, um, but we worked together since 1998, you know, when I, when I started working as a sports psychologist. And he used to work on the South African Olympic program. And one of my clients who was an archer, qualified actually for the sydney olympics um this is how long ago this all was and um and because she was on the olympic program she went and saw my friend and i was really curious to hear from her afterwards what had he done with her you know what how did he actually practice Mm -hmm. and she said he had this whiteboard and he he drew a line down the whiteboard and on the one side he said things you can control and on the other side he said things you can't control and then they wrote together a list of all the things that she could control. And then she said, he just sat there and looked at her. And you know, I thought, well, okay, that's, that's pretty good. Um, you know, why make it more complicated than that? It's true. That's very true. No, good. Um, well, mate, like I said, I don't want to take you too much longer, but I do have a few more questions for you. Yeah, so dealing with different, dealing with different sports throughout your time, 
um, you know, how, how do you address that? Do you, do you approach it's similar for like a, a, a strength coach who goes from, for example, basketball to cricket, to, to AFL, to NRL, to whatever, to, to soccer, uh, to yeah. football, sorry. Um, what's it like for a sports psychologist? How do you address different athletes having different specific sports and talents and skills? Uh, I think you've got to be able to learn. You know, and, and I mean, one of the, I, I had this amazing experience a few years ago. I got, got asked to go and work in the IPL. And I had two assumptions. Um, the one assumption is that what the players would want to talk about would be skill execution. And mm. I have some expertise in skill execution. I worked a lot in golf, and it's a lot about kind of uh, awareness of your body and controlling your body in a very kind of technical way and, and eliminating emotions from your, from your, your, um, from your physical movement. Mm. Um, and I kind of thought that's what they were going to want to talk about. But what they really wanted to talk about was how to emotionally support your teammates. And I had to do quite a fast pivot because I hadn't been anticipating that. And, mm. you know, I hope that I was kind of listening well enough to, to be able to do that. And obviously cricket is one of the sports where you can't physically help a teammate. And that's why they emphasize so much more actually emotionally supporting a teammate. Mm. Um, so that was the one thing that I had to kind of be ready for. The other thing I had to be ready for is that the coach of the team was Ricky Ponting. Mm. And as a South African of a certain age, I haven't watched one ball that Ricky Ponting ever played without wanting him to go out. And, you know, this is a guy I kind of disliked for a whole sort of lifetime. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was kind of ready for what it was going to be like working with this, you know, difficult, opinionated Australian. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a lovely guy. Such a nice guy. I, I was totally disappointed because I thought <laughs> he's, not only, he's not only this amazing cricket and this great kind of legendary captain, he's a brilliant guy as well. Yeah. Um, so what an absolute pleasure to, to work with him and learn from him. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just to see, you know, a, a very uh, humble individual, uh, somebody who's keen to learn. And, and I think what I really took most from him was his ability to acknowledge individuals. Mm. And you know, in India, you work a lot with, um, with so you get net bowlers in India. And, and these guys have just come from a village somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, I really kind of observed Ricky's attention to every single person who came and helped the team at mm. whatever level. And, um, you know, so, so that was something I, I, I kind of wasn't expecting, but was very happy to, to be wrong on. Yeah. And like from my very unprofessional um, perspective, I understand that if you're a golfer or a tennis player um, and you're the only athlete out there on the, on the field, on the playing field, obviously if golfer, you have your caddy and you know, tennis, you yeah. might have your coaches to yard, but on, yeah. and on the day you are, it's the individual athlete, you're out there and you dictate the result. Um, yeah. And then going out on a cricket field or on a football pitch, you have your teammates alongside them. Now from a, your perspective as a psychologist um, and speaking to the athletes when they are, either the individual um, responsible for the result or they are part of a team. Yes. Uh, does that change your way of approaching the individual? When you're when, for example, they come to you with uh, for whatever reason yeah. uh, for performance it, goals. It, it can, you know, because I, I, I think, I think one of the decisions, I mean, 
obviously whatever you do when you're playing in a team sport, you have to contribute to the team. Mm. But for different individuals, it may be that my best contribution to the team is really focusing on myself. You know, so sometimes there is a need just to go, well, I'm going to quite narrowly define my responsibilities and I'm just going to get on with those. Um, On the other hand, you may want to adopt a broader set of responsibilities because it brings the best out of you to kind of take care of other people and inspire other people and instruct other people. Mm. Um, So there's a range. And some people do really well in that sort of inspirational leadership teammate role and others, their best contribution is actually to be more sort of narrowly focused and just get on with your own job. Mm -hmm. It's really just going to be knowing the individual and understanding the person. And um, I think it's even similar to, I was speaking to a lot of um, sports scientists and strength coaches and, 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 um, and physiotherapists within, within teams and within uh, organizations around Australia and around the world. Uh, and they say the exact same things. Like half the job for, for example, a strength and conditioning coach is to know all the knowledge, to know everything in the book and to be able to strengthen yeah. someone and build someone like that's almost a given, but it's how, how you, in, you interact with the individual. That's almost half the job, if not more these days. Uh, yeah. And like from your perspective, it's even more um, important for sure. Yeah. Um, now, mate, again, like I, I'm, I'm seeing the, the clock to go, but I feel like I could talk to you for ages, man. I've got so many different things I want to bring up. Um, but would you have any kind of last minute advice for people who are famous, maybe interested in the same kind of field as you, sports psychology, um, someone who's coming up the ranks or someone who might already be in uh, an organization? Any, any kind of like big uh, bits of advice? Um, well, I, you know, I, I don't know how kind of, absolutely big it is but but i I would say a couple of things the the one thing i would say is that it is a dream job and and i think with any dream dream jobs are oversubscribed that's just how it goes so that's the unfortunate reality and and the thing is oversubscribed jobs are not purely achieved through hard work and skill there's an element of luck and unfairness in it as well. Mm. So that's the one thing that people don't want to hear me say is, you know, I'd, I'd, I've, I've achieved, you know, my dream job. I'm, you know, really kind of excited and grateful for it. And to be brutally honest, a chunk of that was just being lucky. Mm. Right. And, and I've got to be humble enough to acknowledge that. And I've also got to be sort of upfront enough to say to people, well, I cannot guarantee you that you are going to achieve your dream because dream jobs are oversubscribed and not everybody can get there just because of the sheer numbers of it. Mm. So that's kind of the bad news. The good news is that what matters is the work. What matters are the human interactions. So you don't need to achieve the absolute pinnacle in order to be happy or fulfilled. Because if you're working with people, that's what matters. Mm. And, you know, I, I still look back on my time of working, you know, out of a back room in my house in a, a small town in South Africa. And, you know, I did really good work there and I'm really proud of it. And I, I still feel fulfilled by it. I still feel, you know, when, when, I, when I recall my, my career in its totality, I think those are the things that bring me the most happiness and the most warmth is I work with 12 year old kids. And I I think for some of them, I made a difference. Mm. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, that's, um, that's very well said. And I completely agree with you with both, both sides of that. Um, there's a whole lot of luck to it. Um, if you want to make, you say like that, that final achievement, wherever it might be, everyone's different where they think that might, that final achievement is. But I do think that from the start, you should be proud of the work, be proud of the interactions you're making and, and it's more like, you know, living in the moment kind of stuff. That's, that's one side of it. Yeah. But be proud of what you're doing, regardless of the level it's at. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Mate, Tim, thank you very much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed this, thank mate. You. I got a lot out of it. Everyone that's going to listen to this is really going to get out of it. I'm guarantee. Um, now we'll wrap it up there. Hang yeah. on for a minute. We'll have another bit of a chat. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much, mate. No, that, that that's a pleasure. Well, you know, thanks for... Um, Thanks for contacting me. And, you know, it's, it's really nice to talk things through and uh, mm. n- nice to speak to someone from Australia. You know, I've not actually had a lot of, con- I mean, we, we've got Australians um, who, who work with us at Chelsea mm-hmm. and um, being South African, I, I think there was a lot more interaction. So it's really nice to have this conversation. Think about your part of the world. Yeah, now we're, we're spreading and maybe you guys can relate and talk about cricket a little bit more than you would be uh, with, uh, with the palms over there. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, I mean, as a South African, one of the things we always really admired was your sports science Institute. You know, mm. we, we kind of saw you as pioneers in this world. So mm. there's always been a tremendous amount of respect for what it is that you do and your approach to sport. Yeah. It's interesting. Which I, which I think is true of the English as well. You know, I, I think a big part of their Olympic program, the success that they've had recently mm-hmm. actually model on the Australian approach. Mm, yeah. And I, I, I do agree completely. I think it's, it's very much coming out of, from what I understand from an international perspective is a lot of it comes from an uh, Australian rules, uh, football, uh, sports science departments, because that is for us in Australia, that's almost the peak and the Australian yeah. institutes are very high up there. Um, right. and then we see a lot of practitioners expanding from those, those footballing, uh, from footballing codes and crossing codes to soccer or crossing codes over to the NBA or something over in America. Um, and, but yeah, in, anyway, before I go into a bit of a tangent, we'll talk about that for ages. Uh, and again, thank you very much for your, yeah. for your hour and um, I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much to Tim for jumping on this episode. Really got a lot out of that. Um, and I'm sure you guys did as well. Um, his insights from his book, The 10 Rules for Talking, and also his insights on when we talk about the hedonic treadmill uh, and always trying to find that extra sense of pleasure. Um, and then when he brought up the PERMA, so uh, purpose or uh, positive emotion, sorry, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment, and how he tied in uh, all those different uh, concepts into one and how they equal lead to a positive life and how he tries to live by that and, and, and work by that and also in his book how he um, how he kind of uh, advocates for that so yeah really really great talking to Tim thank you again mate for jumping on and thank you to Team Builder for being the sponsor of this episode and for Stance for providing the music or the background music uh, for this episode so I couldn't do it without you guys thank you very much and thank you again for listening in really really do appreciate every every week uh, we're getting the numbers in and getting people to hear uh, these awesome guests talk about their own experiences and their concepts and and frameworks around um, staying mentally well within the high performance industry so it's awesome to to get some responses and some feedback from that so keep listening in then within the next few weeks we've got a few more few more guests lined up um, really good guests uh, on the horizon so please keep listening in and that being said that's the end of the episode so I'll speak to you all next time